In this episode of Full Stack Radio, Jonathan Rennick and I discuss a new CSS framework we just released called Tailwind CSS. We talk about what it is, how it works, and why you might want to give it a try versus other CSS frameworks on the market. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 76. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Full Stack Radio, episode 76. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Wathen, and today I'm back with Jonathan Renning. How's it going, Jonathan? It's going awesome, Adam. So uh, what we wanted to talk about today was last week, uh, Tuesday, at about 10.30 p.m. EST, or EDT, I never really know which one it is, uh, we released a new CSS framework uh, called Tailwind CSS that we have been working on kind of, I've been kind of working on it for a couple of years off and on, but we kind of really decided to take a stab at making it a real open source project uh, early in the summer. So we've kind of been working on it since then. So I thought what would be fun uh, and interesting would be to kind of do a real deep dive episode on what Tailwind is, what it's not, how it compares to other tools out there, uh, what it was like building the thing, how the launch has been going, and you know some of the stuff that we're working on uh, for future releases. So, uh, Jonathan, maybe if you don't mind, why don't you take a stab at explaining what Tailwind CSS is as a framework? Oh man, that's a lot of pressure. Um... You're normally uh, you're normally the copywriter on the team here, but uh, all right, let me uh, let me pull up TailwindCSS.com and start reading. Um, yeah, um, okay. So Tailwind, I'd say in its simplest form, is a CSS framework um, that provides building block utility classes that help you basically build any web design you want. Um, it's maybe easiest to compare it against something that exists like Bootstrap. So it's different than Bootstrap, which provides a set of components. Um, Tailwind is not a UI kit. It's not a UI framework, but rather it's a lower level CSS framework that gives you utility classes that give you access to essentially CSS properties. And generally every single utility class corresponds to one CSS property and value. So that includes things like backgrounds and borders and text color and, and, and margins and padding and all sort of different things like that. And what you do is you take all those classes and instead of writing actual plain old CSS or SAS or less like you're used to, you take these utility classes and you start and you use them directly in your HTML, in your markup, and you use that to build up your design. So it's a pretty radical you know, change from the more traditional way that you would write CSS and build a design in that you're essentially just adding all sorts of classes to component or elements within your markup as opposed to creating classes in CSS and, and building up your design that way. So which, and and... Generally, when people kind of see it for the first time or they hear that explanation, uh, they, they, there's a bit of a lashback, like, why would you ever want to do that? You're going to end up with horribly ugly HTML, and your markup's going to have all these classes in there. That doesn't sound very semantic. Um, why are you doing this? You're ruining the internet. You've broken the web. <laughs> Literally, people have said this. But what's interesting is if you allow yourself to take a look, take a second look, take some time to try it out. Um, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yes, at the end of the day, you still end up with a lot of classes in your markup. But the the actual, I think, and I mentioned this on a previous podcast when we've been talking about utility for CSS. What, what I discovered was the most interesting part of the whole shift to utility first was the process that it enabled it creates a different workflow than more like the more traditional way of writing CSS. And I do a lot more designing in the browser now. Uh, and, and really the end, the end result is that I create designs way faster than I did previously using like the standard, you know, BM sort of approach to creating, um, creating designs. So yeah, I, I've really enjoyed working with it, which is kind of how I got involved with this project. Um, and, uh, 
I hope that that's a good enough intro. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So um, I think the only thing that I would add is just kind of some of the technical details about kind of what it is as a framework and how you kind of get started with it. So something that I think is like a little bit unique about it um, is that unlike something like Bootstrap uh, or Foundation, where you're actually given like a set of, you know, SAS source files that you either pull in as a dependency and then clone out a variables file and edit that or something like that. Tailwind is actually built like entirely in uh, JavaScript using PostCSS, which sounds a little bit weird at first, but if you're already using a tool like Auto Prefixer, which I think, you know, the vast majority of people uh, building stuff are using auto prefixer to automatically go through their style sheets and add their vendor prefixes and stuff so they don't have to maintain that themselves. If you're already using something like that, uh, then you actually already have the tooling in place to use uh, Tailwind because auto prefixer is a post CSS plugin and Tailwind is a post CSS uh, plugin as well. So to get started with it, what you do is you do like an NPM install Tailwind CSS uh, to bring it into your project as a, a JavaScript dependency. And then you just kind of plug it in as a PostCSS plugin into uh, your build chain. There's actually kind of two ways that you can do it. Well, three ways, really. Um, For people who really just want to, like, try Tailwind and find out if they hate it or if they love it and they don't want to go through this whole process, uh, we do have pre-built Tailwind files that sit on a CDN. So you can just pull them in and hack around that way. You're going to be missing out on, like, 75% of all Tailwind's features that way because there's a lot of stuff Uh, that's a lot more sophisticated that really needs the build chain to be able to take advantage of. But if you just want to try out, like, do I like these, these class names? Do I like what it feels like to compose designs in the markup out of classes? You can totally pull stuff down from the CDN. Another approach is, uh, install everything with NPM and actually Tailwind has a built-in CLI tool that you can use to compile your CSS that's using Tailwind. So you just run like Tailwind build and pass in the CSS file that you're using Tailwind in, and it'll generate uh, output for you. And the reason that that matters is because unlike something like Bootstrap uh, or Foundation, where maybe in your SAS you're doing something like at import and then referencing Bootstrap's sort of entry file in your node modules directory or wherever you're keeping it, maybe you're using Bower and it's a little bit different, I don't even know. Uh, with Tailwind, Instead of doing that at import and then passing like a path to like Tailwind's files or whatever, Tailwind actually creates like a new CSS directive that looks like at import, but it's at Tailwind. And then you just specify sort of keywords for the different parts of Tailwind that you want to pull in. So at Tailwind is like Tailwind's own custom import. So you would do like at Tailwind preflight, which is our base styles with kind of a cute name for it that loads in Tailwind's sort of like reset or base styles. And then you can add any custom CSS you want that needs to come after the base styles, but before Tailwind's utility classes. And where you want Tailwind to spit out its utility classes, you do at Tailwind utilities. And then when you run that through your post CSS build chain, um, the Tailwind post CSS plugin is going to sort of find these hooks that you've dropped into your CSS and inject Tailwind stuff in there. Um, And this is really important because of how much customization uh, Tailwind offers. Now, that's something that we're going to get into uh, in more detail later, but that's kind of generally what it's like to use it. Um, So, yeah, you can use the Tailwind CLI tool to just do Tailwind build and build a CSS input file, uh, or you can plug it in as a post-CSS plugin into your build chain. Uh, For the vast majority of, like, real-world projects, that's how you're going to do it. It's really easy to do with Webpack or Gulp. If you're a Laravel developer, it's so painless to do it with uh, Laravel Mix. Um, So it sounds like sort of a high barrier to entry, maybe, if that sounds sort of intimidating. But uh, in practice, it actually ends up uh, being really straightforward and simple. And the power that it affords is is really, really crazy. So uh, I think that's one thing that makes it a little bit different than what's out there is that it's like a JavaScript-driven post-CSS plugin uh, instead of CSS. The way that it's actually implemented under the hood, we basically don't have any CSS in the project in the sense that... Uh, when we're writing utilities, we're not creating .css files. It's We're working with a JavaScript API. Now, that's not something an end user ever has to worry about. Um, to you, it's just entirely CSS. But uh, under the hood, it is, it's kind of an interesting beast for sure. Yeah, and I would say for anybody who's never worked with post-CSS before, I'd reiterate that 
Um, you actually probably are. You just don't realize it because you're using auto prefixer. Really, the whole reason they even created post CSS was because of auto prefixer. And um, so if you're thinking, well, I'm really happy with, you know, stylus or less or SAS, you know, I really don't want to switch over to post CSS because that's just way too much for me to learn all at one time or that's just too much of a change. Um, it's worth mentioning that you can use post CSS with a preprocessor like Stylus, SAS, or Less. Um, in fact, uh, on my projects, I generally use Laravel Mix. Um, and in the past, I've used Less quite often. And it's really easy to do. Basically, executes your, your Less files first, and then it executes the post CSS stuff second. So that's kind of a, a common misconception. People think, well, do I use a preprocessor or do I use post CSS? It's like, well, the reality is you can use one or the other or both. Yeah, I think another common misconception or at least kind of gut reaction is you hear that, um, okay, it's written in post-CSS, so now I have to learn post-CSS, which uh, is fundamentally like an incorrect way of thinking about it. Like the plugin is written in post-CSS, but you don't have to know anything about post-CSS to use it, just like with auto-prefixer. You don't know post-CSS um, you know, when you're using auto prefixer, you just plug it in at the end and it does its stuff and that's that. So there's really nothing new to learn in terms of like trying to understand some new paradigm to writing your CSS or learn some new preprocess or anything. It really is just like a layer that sits at the end of your CSS and whether that CSS was built from less or SAS, um, Tailwind doesn't care. It cares about like the finished CSS file, which is generated from your preprocessors, if you want to use them, and then it applies its transformations uh, onto there. So that's not really anything that you have to worry about. So do not be intimidated by that. So I think uh, the next thing that would be interesting to get into, at least briefly, is just sort of like the origin story behind the framework. Um, and maybe not so much like the origins behind changing to this sort of approach, because we've talked about that on previous podcasts. Uh, that we can link up in the show notes, but just kind of um, where the framework came from. Uh, so for me, I was actually working on a project with Steve Shoger, who's a friend of mine who actually helped out with some of the more like design elements of the framework. And uh, we were working on this new project and it was when Bootstrap 4 was still in alpha, but Bootstrap 3 was kind of like dead in the water and not really super supported anymore. And I've always been like a huge less fan. I've always hated SAS for a couple of reasons that aren't worth getting into, but I've always preferred less. So when Bootstrap switched to SAS, to me, that was almost like a nail on the coffin for me using Bootstrap because I wanted to keep using less. So I just started cooking up sort of a homegrown uh, framework, you know, it wasn't really a framework at the time. It was really just me trying to create what I thought was a well-organized and maintainable set of styles in less for this project they were working on. Uh, but with a big focus in my mind on creating things in like a project agnostic, uh, reusable way. So there wasn't a lot of classes that were specific to that project. You know, they were more about the visual sort of UI that we were trying to build. So maybe there'd be styles for form controls, styles for buttons, styles for modals, uh, try, trying to create like reusable stuff. So over over time, that just kind of kept growing. And from project to project, I kind of ported that around, which is really just me copying and pasting some files around. And it sort of started to mature and, and get a little bit better. And over time, I found myself adding more and more of these little helper utility classes and composing things that way. Because what I found is, as I moved from project to project, um, you sort of start to notice, like, what are the parts that are reusable and what are the parts that aren't? And I would find things like, well, on this project, these buttons look different. So the buttons that I built for the other project, I can't really use those. But these utilities for, like, spacing things apart from each other or centering text or doing some flexboxy stuff. Well, that's totally reusable because, you know, that's the same on every project. So I just kept finding more and more that the parts that were reusable were the lower and lower level of abstractions. So that's kind of what really started to get carried around. You know, that was the stuff that really lasted when I would port it from project to project. So, you know, over time, I started getting a lot more uh, comfortable and enjoying this sort of utility-based uh, CSS approach. I can link to an article that really describes this whole journey for me in detail. Um, but I've been talking with Jonathan a lot about this as he was working on a redesign of one of his projects. And he kind of was just like, you know what, I want to try this crazy thing that you're doing. Um, help me get started with this. Give me your style sheets and let's kind of get this going. So uh, yeah, it's, 
I would say that was after many months of you talking about it. I'm like, no, no, dude, I, I'm happy living in my BEM world over here. Don't <laughs> don't just don't disrupt this happy world that I've created. Yeah. So um, eventually I got him to try it anyways. And he was hesitant. But very quickly, he was like, dude, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. This is so fun. I can't believe how fast I'm working, uh, which was really cool. So then we just sort of decided, um, you know, what can we do to to figure out a way to keep this sort of base set of styles that we're both using sort of shared and maintained uh, in a way that we both don't have just, you know, completely separate copy and pasted versions of it. And that was kind of what spurred eventually turning this into like a, a public open source project, just figuring out a way for us to share it between our two projects. So we iterated on it for a long, long time, argued about a lot of things and figured out, um, you know, new utilities that we needed to add and come came up with different solutions to different different problems and it just sort of grew to to what it is today and we eventually uh, released it you know as the open source framework that it is now so there's a lot more that that we can talk about there but that's kind of uh, the history of it and tells the story from you know my crappy little less framework to what eventually became this massive post css plugin that's now got like 2100 stars on github and 30 plus contributors and all in less than a week, which has been pretty crazy. Yeah, it's pretty intimidating. And I remember at the beginning too, you're like, okay, I have this idea for a framework. It's not done, but I already have the name for it. It's going to be Tailwind. I'm like, hey, that sounds pretty awesome. Let's roll with that. I don't even know where you even came up with that. So I was working on Kitetail, right, which was my um, SaaS app that has kind of been on pause for a little while as I get used to being a dad and taking care of some other responsibilities that I have. Uh, But I was using what has now become Tailwind styles on Kitetail as well. And people kept bugging me on my live streams to like open source uh, the thing because they thought it was really interesting. And of course, like before you can open source anything or release anything, a name is the most important thing. You can't do anything until you have a name. But it was one of those magical moments where I was just like, okay, maybe I can like brand it as like a Kitetail thing, which it isn't at all anymore now. It, it, It just ended up using that name and it worked out fine but i was like okay kite tail you know what are some sort of like things related to flying or whatever and i started looking up like words that had tail in it and stuff like that and i saw tailwind and it's like oh that's kind of a great name because it kind of ties back to the brand that i originally kind of wanted to associate it with but at the same time you know a tailwind is something that like helps you move faster with less effort right so if you're in a plane and there's like a tailwind you're going to get where you're going faster using less fuel that sort of thing that's like oh that's that's kind of appropriate and then i told steve about it and asked him if he wanted to make a logo and like 10 minutes later he had a logo and so it's just one of those things where you know normally i'll toil over a name for weeks and weeks and weeks this one came to me in like 15 minutes normally steve wants to shoot himself in the head trying to work out (laughs) logos for things and this one just came to him instantly um, so I don't know when things like start to happen really fast like that. And you just like things work themselves out super quick. Um, that always seems like, uh, you know, a recipe for things going well. It reminds me of like when I used to play in bands and stuff, if you'd be like working on a song and you'd be re- trying to perfect this song for like six months, those songs were never as good as the songs that you just like wrote in two hours in a jam session. You know what I mean? So I kind of liken it to that, but yeah, so that's where kind of the name came from and now i don't even really think about it as like a kite tail related thing at all but that was sort of a the inspiration for looking in that sort of vocabulary for a name yeah and let's be honest this project had enough challenges that it was nice to have a few wins a few easy wins just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors and that is rollbar so here's what paul the founder of circle ci had to say about one of their favorite features of rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at circle ci before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors. And it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really, uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language. We're very focused on making sure that customers are happy and we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on you know, th- this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is 
very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. So um, I think uh, what would be interesting is to address maybe some of the more common questions that we've gotten about you know, what makes Tailwind interesting? Like, why does it exist when there's all these other CSS frameworks out there? So I think the first thing to talk about there is just, you kind of talked about a little bit at the beginning of our conversation about how it's different from frameworks uh, like Bootstrap or Foundation or Balma, uh, which I kind of classify as sort of more component-driven frameworks. Uh, So when you like go check out Bootstrap, Bootstrap is all about buttons and forms and modals and cards and list groups and input groups and these sorts of higher level abstractions. Tailwind has none of those, right? And the reason is that I think they're trying to serve different audiences. So a framework like Bootstrap, um, while I've seen people do some really amazing things with custom UIs with Bootstrap, what I tend to notice is that a lot of the people using Bootstrap are using Bootstrap because they are not designers, you know what I mean? Or they don't really have a good grasp of CSS. And they just want to have sort of a menu of sort of pre-built, commonly used components to sort of choose from, to sort of construct their site out of, knowing that at the end of the day, it's going to look pretty good because the people behind Bootstrap make pretty good design decisions. Everything ends up being fairly generic, right? And Bootstrap has sort of a look and that people have come to sort of know and you can you can usually tell when someone's made like a bootstrap site uh, if they haven't put a lot of effort into really customizing it and, and making it their own. Um, so if you're someone who would choose a framework like bootstrap or foundation because uh, you think it looks good or Balma is another example of that, right? Where you go to the site and you're like, oh, I really like how these cards look. I really like how these buttons look. I want to apply this look to my site. Then framework like Tailwind are probably not a good fit for you, right? Tailwind is more for people who have a design that they've put together or someone who, you know, has design skills and wants to build something uh, totally custom where using a framework like Bootstrap would be more trouble than help, you know, where you're trying to make a button and, well, I don't want my buttons to look like Bootstrap's buttons. So now I got to find out all these variables to tweak or figure out how to override their styles and figure out how to do that in a way that's going to be maintainable, uh, that's idiomatic, where I don't feel like I'm kind of duct taping things together and making a mess. And I think that's a struggle that anyone uh, can sort of resonate with when it comes to trying to use like foundation or bootstrap or Balma to build something that looks truly custom. There's like a lot of a lot of decisions you have to make about how to customize it in a, a way that feels nice and not like a, a hairy mess. I think another situation where it can make a lot of sense to choose a framework like Bootstrap or something over Tailwind. Uh, there's a whole kind of world of developers who just work on like internal projects at companies. You know what I mean? Where you need to build something that is very functional and very usable, um, but it's internal. It doesn't need to have this its own sexy, unique brand like a company like Stripe would have. You know, it doesn't matter if this tool just looks exactly like the bootstrap defaults because the design is not really part of it. It just needs, it's about making something functional and usable. Um, So in cases like those, something like Tailwind might not be ideal either because you're going to have to do a lot of work to rebuild a lot of some of these fundamental uh, elements. And if it really doesn't matter that it looks like every other bootstrap site because you're just building a functional internal tool, you know, then something like that is probably a good choice too. Uh, do you have anything to add in terms of like differences or, or, you know, what philosophical differences between a functional or utility based framework like tailwind versus something like bootstrap or foundation? Yeah. Like I think you've described it well. Um, I think it explains sort of what, where we fit, where this project fits in the market this isn't something that you would necessarily use. Well, it, it might be something you use instead of Bootstrap, but it's definitely set out to solve a 
sort of a, a lower level problem problem. Um, I think, I think there's actually a lot of really good choices out there for people who don't want to implement their own design and just want to have some really solid components to work with and stuff that looks, you know, really good, but can't necessarily be customized or tweaked or massaged for their particular project or brand. I think there's lots of good projects out there. You, you, you listed a few already. Um, that's definitely not tailwind. Um, Tailwind's more looking to help people. And this is sort of the space that I don't think has been serviced quite as well in the CSS world. And that's people who are like, no, I want to literally create my own design, but I need some tools to help me, you know, do that faster. And obviously that's a very, it's a tricky place to help because it feels like anytime you write any CSS property, you've started making decisions for someone around their design. And we definitely felt this as we worked through this project. Like we often, me and Adam often, you know, stopped ourselves and said, okay, well, are we trying to make a design decision right now? And if we're making a a design decision, are we maybe trying to add something to Tailwind that shouldn't be in there? So I feel like people who want to try, like really want to speed up their their custom design building um, without committing full on to some sort of component framework. I feel like that's where Tailwind fits really, really well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the other class of frameworks to sort of compare it to is the other like functional CSS frameworks or utility frameworks out there. Uh, because Tailwind is certainly not a trailblazer necessarily in this space. We didn't invent a whole new way of working. There's certainly other frameworks out there that are designed to provide these low-level utility classes. Probably the most popular one is Tachyons. Um, other ones are Beard by David Hempel, who's also a core contributor on Tailwind uh, with us. Uh, what other ones are there? There's Base CSS. Uh, there's things like Shed CSS, which is uh, the system they use at um, TED. I think uh, BuzzFeed has open sourced theirs, which is called Solid, uh, which is, you know, also like a utility based framework, although kind of opinionated uh, for them. But, you know, needless to say, there's a lot of other tools in the space that kind of try to do things in a similar way. Everything is about these low level classes that are designed to apply just single individual CSS properties, and they don't come with things like buttons or forms uh, or anything like that. So, common question uh, that we've received since kind of releasing Tailwind is why should I care that this exists when I could already use something like Tachyons or Beard? Um, So maybe do you mind talking a bit about some of the reasons why uh, we think Tailwind kind of deserves to exist or or what it does a little bit differently? Yep, absolutely. So I think there's probably, I don't know, there's, there's probably lots of subtle differences between Tailwind and other frameworks as they're you know, there always would be. Um, but I think there's a few fundamental things that really mattered to Adam and I while we were building this. Um, and I'd say those were naming and customization. Those are like the two big ones. Um, but then also um, a special care for documentation and and also still being component friendly with the framework. So um, naming... It's different. So Tailwind's naming, and when I say naming, I refer to the actual utilities, the actual classes, the CSS classes that we've chosen. Um, you'll find that compared to other um, functional CSS frameworks, our our names are generally longer. They're a little bit more descriptive. They're they're not quite as terse as what you will see in frameworks like Tachyons. Um, and I think this is actually a real turnoff uh, for people like. Once you've used a utility framework, I think, and you've really like gone into that space and got like really comfortable with it, I think these really short terse class names are really appealing. So for instance, using two letter words, so letter spacing, you, you maybe, or yeah, line height, you use LH or for uppercase UC or lowercase LC and all these sort of like one to three letter class names that describe some sort of style that you can apply to an element. And I think that those are attractive once you're comfortable with utility-based CSS. But I think as somebody who first looks at this and looks at these classes and sees all these um, these really short, confusing classes, it's really a turnoff. And people say, well, what 
what on earth does this even mean? It's not very legible to somebody who doesn't understand the framework. And that's so that's sort of like something we tried right from the get-go to say, well, we don't want that to happen. We don't want people to read our CSS classes and have no idea what's actually going on. So we we use full words like uppercase if we want uppercase text. Um, we use the word border. Um, we use the word flex. Really, across the board, we use longer class names, which I think makes a little – ultimately, at the end of the day, it's it's – a design preference. It's a choice. The way that Tachyons does it versus the way we do it versus the way the next framework does it, they're all fine. It really just comes down to what sort of flavor you want. And I feel like Tailwind provides a different flavor in that regard. Yeah, I think that's you know exactly right. I think we definitely went out of our way to try and strike the right balance between things being terse when they're really obvious and more verbose when uh, there's, you know, potential ambiguity, you know? So we have things like BG-green for making a background uh, green, uh, but for text color, we'll use something like uh, text-green, whereas some other frameworks try to base everything really tightly on, like, the CSS property names. They might do, like, color green instead of text green, whereas... You know, we kind of made this decision that maybe it's a little bit more intuitive to explicitly say you're making the text green versus color. Even though the CSS property is color, the effect of it, you know, is making the text green. Or something like borders. If you just want to apply a border to the bottom of an element in uh, Tailwind, that's border-b. We could do border-bottom, right? That would be, like, more verbose. But border-b is verbose enough where you can look at it and understand what it does uh, while still being terse where it's not important, you know? So R for right, T for top, B for bottom. But we don't do like just BT for like border top or something because it's just not enough information if you're not, if you haven't already learned this whole like dictionary of stuff, you know? So another thing uh, that you mentioned that I think is a really, really important difference between uh, Tailwind and other uh, kind of utility frameworks is just like the customization story, right? And I think um, the reason that this is important to me is that the biggest obstacle for me for any framework that I've ever used is that inevitably, no matter how hard a framework tries, there's always going to be stuff missing that you need to add for your own project, right? Whether that's a couple utility classes that the framework chose not to provide for whatever reason, maybe you need to do some really fancy stuff that can only be done in CSS. Like a lot of marketing pages have really crazy custom stuff that you need to implement that needs to be pixel perfect to line up all these overlapping images and stuff like that. Uh, Inevitably, there's always a need to add new CSS to these frameworks. And in my experience, most of the frameworks out there, and I'm not just speaking specifically to utility frameworks here, but just in general, almost every CSS framework I've ever worked with has not had a good enough Uh, customization story in my experience. I've always kind of felt uncomfortable adding my own CSS or changing some variable. I never know like in Bootstrap is changing the line height of a form control. Well, that's actually connected to the size of a spacer. So should I change the spacer or should I just override the fact that it's depending on the spacer? And now is that going to make things look inconsistent? There's this big dependency tree between all these variables. Um, I never know like where in the file should I add these uh, classes? You know, you always want to just know, like, if I if if I was the creator of this framework, how would I be customizing it? And I think that's the thing that's missing a lot of time. So something we really, really tried hard to do uh, with Tailwind, and this is both in the documentation and just in the design of the tool, is just make it really, really, really clear how to add your own stuff, how to tweak what's there, how to remove what's there, and make you feel really comfortable doing that without worrying about what side effects they're going to have that you weren't able to predict. So the way that customization works in Tailwind is when you install it, uh, you can use our CLI tool to run this Tailwind init command, which generates a javascript configuration file not not a json configuration file it's literally a javascript file similar to what you might be used to with webpack although hopefully not as intimidating and that file just contains uh sort of your 
site's style guide or design system in a sense. It contains things like specifying what breakpoints you want to have and what you want them to be called. So by default, we have four breakpoints, right? There's SM, MD, LG, and XL, and those each have a pixel value associated with them. And uh, we didn't even mention this, but Tailwind is crazy responsive, like to the core. So every single class in Tailwind is also available responsively. So say that you have uh, text green, and on medium screens, you want the text to be blue. Well, you just do text green on your HTML element, and then add another class, MD colon text blue. And that says on medium screens, uh, make the text blue. So by default, every single utility in Tailwind is available prefixed with all of your screen sizes. Um, so you have this JavaScript file, and you can edit that sort of thing there, right? So you, if you wanted to change the small screen size from being called SM to being called mobile, you could do that. You could change MD to tablet. You can change LG to laptop. Uh, change them as much as you want. You can change the values, of course, as well, not just the keys. And everything will be regenerated um, to match that when you actually run uh, Tailwind's PostCSS plugin on your CSS again. And none of those values are depended on by anything else in the framework, right? So there's no other places where we're going to try and do a lookup and try and find, oh, what was your medium screen size? And now the build fails because you changed it from medium to tablet. Like that's the sort of thing that I always fear with frameworks like Bootstrap. So with our configuration file, every single thing is completely decoupled. Nothing depends on anything else um, unless you want it to, at, at which point that's totally up to you, which is why we made it a JavaScript file. So for example, you can configure your background colors in this config file, right? To say um, which classes should be generated um, for background color. So maybe I want to have six different grays. Maybe I want to have like a light red and a dark red, a light green and a dark green, whatever you want, right? So you can just say in this big object that you export from this config, config file, you just say background colors, colon, and then you pass an object that contains all the colors. Uh, you can do the same thing for text colors and border colors. And uh, there might be other stuff that you can set the colors of too, but those are the three that come to mind. Uh, but anyways, say you have just like a generic color palette for your whole site. You've sort of worked with your design team to figure out this is these are the colors. These are the brand colors that we use in our product. If you don't want to duplicate that stuff across borders, backgrounds, and text, well, it's just a JavaScript file. So you just make a variable called colors. You put them all there, and then you assign that variable to background colors, text colors, and border colors. So handling stuff like duplication... Um, and stuff like that is, is entirely under your control. Um, so if you want two different utilities to use the same color palette, will you just assign them the same variable? You know, there's nothing fancy that we do in terms of trying to connect things like that. Uh, but anyways, you have this file, and that's where you can specify millions of things. Like uh, you specify all your responsive breakpoints, background colors, text colors, font families, what font weights you want to have available, Um what other stuff is in there? Your shadows, your opacity scale, your Z-index scale, uh, your spacing helpers, your height, width, max height, min height, you know, all those sorts of helpers. Um, anything that made sense uh, to be customizable can be customized in that file. Um, so if you need some extra spacing helpers, you can add them. If you want to change some colors, you can add them. And there's literally zero chance of anything breaking um, no matter how many keys you remove, how many keys you change the names of, how many values you change, all it's going to do is generate utilities with slightly different names uh, and different values. So by default, for example, we use a literal color palette. So all our colors are named based on their colors. So we have green, which is a hex value, light green, lighter green, red, light red, dark red, etc. And those generate utilities like BG red, BG dark red. Um, if you're not comfortable with that sort of like literal naming scheme. Maybe you want to use something that's a bit more um, semantic, you know, quote unquote semantic or functional. So maybe you want BG primary or text secondary, that sort of thing. Well, that's your call. You can change the names of those colors and have primary be a certain hex color. No big deal. You can do whatever you want. And the other thing that we do in terms of customization is all this stuff is crazy, crazy documented. So when you generate that config file, it's not just kind of like a maze that you have to kind of work your way through. Jonathan spent hours and hours going through this config file and adding big comments to every single key that explains exactly what it does, explains how the class name is generated. So you know, like, okay, when I say that I want to change the names of my text sizes from a, a 
an alphabetic scale or a word-based scale like we have where by default it's text small, text medium, text large, etc. If you want to change that to just text 1, 2, 3, 4 through 9 or whatever, um, you can change that and the comment will make it very clear to you like how changing those keys is going to affect the names of the generated classes. Um, so everything is super intuitive and super clear. Uh, in the documentation, while the documentation is still a work in progress and every page that is missing this information is marked as such, but the pages that are complete, at the top of every page there's a little badge that says customizable. And you click that and it'll scroll you right down to the section that explains exactly how to customize that utility. It shows a diff showing what you can delete, what you can add. Just We really, really try to make it really kind of comfortable to change this stuff uh, without worrying that you're going to break anything. And, you know, not to toot our own horn, but I really, really believe that we've done a better job with this than any other uh, CSS framework that I've ever seen. I don't know. Do you have anything else to add to the, the customization story there? No, that's good. I would say the only thing I would add is the fact that we, by default, um, ship a really, what I feel, sensible default, you know, config so don't feel like when you install this thing, suddenly you have this big job ahead of you where you're going to have to go and fill this all out. Um, quite the opposite. You can basically install it and start working with it and then modify it kind of as you need to. Um, so I feel like that gives you like a huge head start. So it reduces a bunch of the decisions that you'd maybe have to make otherwise. Um, yeah, I think other than that, I feel like that what's allowed us to do this, what's allowed us to say, well, you can change the colors or you can change the sizing or, you know, whatever value you want without breaking anything. What's really enabled that is the fact that this is a utility framework and not a, a, a component framework. framework. Yeah. Because that's been the challenge with like that. That really is like, I, my heart goes out to the folks at bootstrap to, to make bootstrap customizable would be a very, very difficult job to make it fully customizable, which is why they have so many variables because once you have one component, say, um, relying on a certain spacing helper or, or, or some sort of padding or some sort of color or border or whatever, you might want to change it for one place in your app. But, you know, if that if that component is relying on that value, well, then if you change it in one place, it's only natural that it changes in that other place. And that's where you run into the, all these like really tricky decisions like, OK, if I change this here, what's that all going to affect? And the scary part is you don't quite often know. You, you literally don't know. So I think because Tailwind is at this lower level, you can have all these values that you can change um, and really make it your own without this constant fear that things are going to break all over the place. And, and we've had lots of discussions already over the last number of days with people starting to use Tailwind where we say, you know what, they're like, hey, can you, you know, can we add this to Tailwind? It's like, no, but you can easily just edit the config file and now you literally have it. And there's there's nothing wrong with doing that. Don't feel bad about changing the config file. In fact, throughout the whole config file, we like over and over and over encourage people, make changes to this thing. This is this is just the default. And I think you, you skipped over there or you briefly mentioned the part about the fact that it's a JavaScript file and not a JSON file, like I think uh, even in, a, in an earlier iteration of Tailwind, it actually did accept uh, a, a JSON file um, for that format. But we decided against it because, for, you know, one thing we found is, well, obviously you can't have comments in, in JSON, so that's a real issue. And two, it's like really picky about you know, um, trailing commas and different things like that, which makes it just a more difficult format to use Um for configuration. So, and then just the, the fact that if you just have a real JavaScript file, you can literally just build up this config using like a real programming language. Um, and you know, the full power of JavaScript, the full power of node, and you can just build it up however you want. It's really cool. Yeah. That's, that's actually an underrated piece of it for sure, because a common situation that you know, you could totally run into is say you define like a variable called colors, like we do in the default config, and it just has your entire color palette for your product, which might be a lot of colors. We have like 60 or something colors or actually I think it's like 83 colors by default in the Tailwind config. So Jonathan is totally correct when he's saying like uh, the, the Tailwind config, he's, he used the word sensible, which I think is correct for a lot of things. I would also say it's just generally extremely generous. Like we try to provide more than you'll need um, because we don't want you to have to go to that config file and then constantly be adding stuff. It's better to have more than you need 
and always have things available to you so that two weeks from now you go to do something that you didn't have to do before and it's like oh great i already had a utility for that i don't have to go and update the config uh, to generate it um but on the javascript side of things what's interesting there is if you have this 83 color color palette it's 73 73 all right 73 say you only need a, a handful of those for a certain um situation right like say for border colors you actually only need like three different grays out of this whole color palette or something instead of assigning all of them like you can totally import low dash into your config file and do some fancy filtering or plucking to get just the keys that you want um you know you can do anything you want in terms of that it's just javascript you can write code in there now i'm sure you could get carried away there um, but it is nice to be able to uh, avoid duplication and kind of not have to you know copy and paste these same colors into a bunch of different places uh, so there's a lot of power there i think something else that we didn't mention in terms of customization actually is um, not only is like all the existing stuff customizable we've also provided a lot of documentation and tooling around extending the framework um, with stuff that it doesn't provide at all. So currently, out of the box, um, we don't have utilities for things like, say, background gradients. That's something that we would like to add eventually, but right now we don't have them. Say you wanted to add some background gradient utilities to your CSS file, and you wanted them to have all the same features that Tailwind's utilities have, like having the responsive prefixes and that sort of thing. We have like dedicated documentation to explaining where exactly you should put these classes in your CSS file, how to use tools that come with Tailwind. Like Tailwind has this at responsive custom at rule that looks like a media query, but you wrap that around a utility and Tailwind in its processing phase will see, oh, you want to generate responsive versions of this. So using the screens defined in your config file will generate, you know, maybe you have like BG brand gradient as your utility. So we'll have that. We'll also have SM BG grand gradient, MD, you know, generate all the responsive versions, that sort of thing. Uh, so all that stuff is, is heavily documented. So uh, it's extremely clear how you're supposed to add new stuff uh, to the framework, not only just, you know, customizing what it provides. So our goal was just really to make you feel comfortable pulling it into a project and being able to customize it as needed, add stuff to it that it doesn't have, uh, and just really make that, you know, painless and uh, and straightforward and, and not leave you in a situation where you're constantly trying to, like, make a decision about the best way to do something or Googling to find out what different customization approaches people use. I mean, there's certainly other frameworks I've seen out there where people have asked the creator of the framework on Twitter, um, what's the best way to customize this? And they haven't even been able to point to a single article or resource. Instead, you know, the best they can say is, well, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could do it. You just have to kind of decide what you think works best for you, which I don't think is enough guidance personally. Um, you yeah, were going to add yeah, something? I, yeah, I think, um, what was I going to say? Oh, I was going to mention, yeah, that Tailwind at the end of the day is providing all these utilities for under, you know, for, for basically existing CSS properties, but the CSS spec is huge. So, um, for Tailwind by default to provide a, a utility for every single property and an option in CSS would would be well, it would be possible, but it would just be ridiculous. You'd have the the largest file, outputted CSS file ever. So what you know, having a, a good system to create your own utilities um, allows us is to create a default sensible set of utilities for the you know that come with the framework, while still allowing people to create new ones for those situations where the, the framework falls short, um, which I think is a really, really kind of good approach to this. Otherwise, we'd always feel like, oh, somebody's basically stuck and can't do something um, with our framework because we don't bake it in. You know, we've used the, we've used the, the analogy of like there's a release hatch somewhere. So Tailwind has lots and lots of release hatches so that when the framework start, you know, doesn't have a solution, there's, there's something that you can do to make, you know, it work still for your project. Totally. And not only, and not only work for your project, we actually provide 
direction about how we would recommend you do that. Because that's the one thing that I think it's easy to get lost to. It's like, well, you can write whatever CSS you want. You can extend it however you want. But I think sometimes people want direction about, well, how would you do that? How do you recommend doing that? Because it can be crippling being like, okay, well, I don't really know how I should extend it. I don't really know how I should add my own utility. I don't really know how I should add this color or that or that font size. It's like we provide a lot of direction for people so they know exactly how to do that. Yeah. I think there's like a lot of um, fear in some situations where sometimes it feels like the only way or the easiest way to, to customize a framework is to basically fork it or copy and paste its, you know, outputted styles into your project and just go through and change it, which honestly, I think that usually results in the best quality CSS at the end of the day, because you're not like adding new definitions of the same class to undo styles that came with the framework or whatever. But then you can't easily pull in updates to the framework or bug fixes. And that, that's the annoying thing that people are always kind of getting hum, hung up on, right? So with Tailwind, super easy to customize. You can always pull in updates with NPM. Nothing's ever going to break, um, which is really cool. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that's CodeShip. So CodeShip is a hosted continuous integration platform in the cloud that helps you increase your development productivity and ship to production more frequently. CodeShip lets you standardize your tooling and processes across your teams, speeds up your build times, and integrates into your existing ecosystem of tools. CodeShip is a great fit for your team, whether you're just trying to speed up the build times for large apps, or if you want to set up complex delivery pipelines for your microservices using tools like Docker, Kubernetes, and others. Forrester recently released their latest continuous integration tools report, which provides valuable guidance into the rapidly growing continuous integration and continuous delivery market. And CodeShip actually scored as a top five continuous integration vendor in this report. If you're interested in reading this report and learning more about what makes for a great continuous integration and continuous delivery service, uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and I'll have a link there for you. So if you want to spend less time managing your tools and speed up your software development, give CodeShip a try and sign up for free today at CodeShip.com. I've been a user of CodeShip uh, for many years for all the open source projects that I run continuous integration on, as well as private projects where I use CI, and I couldn't be happier with the service. So thanks to CodeShip for sponsoring the podcast this week, and back to the show. So I think like the last piece here that we want to talk about that's related to you know what makes it different from other utility frameworks is that um, a lot of other utility frameworks kind of take like a fairly dogmatic approach when it comes to their stance on you should only be using utility classes and that if you create a class that sets multiple CSS properties or create or adds a declaration that already exists in one of your utility classes, that's a smell, right? So for example, say you were building buttons, right? If you're looking at even the Tailwind documentation for our button examples, you'll see that you can compose these buttons entirely out of utilities, right? So that might include a background color, a text color, some horizontal padding, some vertical padding, maybe a box shadow, maybe um, a border, maybe what the background should be on hover, maybe what the text should be on hover, you might end up with like 11 classes in this HTML, right? Which at first seems intimidating, but honestly, you'll get comfortable with it pretty quickly and realize that this is like a fairly reasonable way to go for things that are one-off styles, right? That's kind of the key. Something like a button is a great example of something where you might have a hundred of these buttons throughout your site and you want all these buttons to look the same. And if that button is made up of 11 classes and you have to copy and paste those classes everywhere uh, where you want to use that button, well, there's a real, um, a real maintainability risk there, right? If I want to change how this button looks, now I got to find every instance and update all those classes. And that's, you know, not super ideal. So the answer that a lot of other frameworks have for this sort of thing is to use like a template layer, right? Where they'll say, well, if you have a button, you should be creating a React component for that button. Um, and all the utility classes can live in there. And then you can just use that React component everywhere that you're adding a new button. And now you don't have to worry about that duplication. I think the thing that's easy to forget here is that there's a fucking lot of people out there that are just making WordPress themes uh, and not building complex React apps that have some sort of advanced, you know, templating or component story. Uh, so even with something like WordPress, yeah, sure, you could 
figure out how to bring in twig or something and create parcels and everything for all this stuff. But is, is that really like worth it just because apparently it's like an anti-pattern to combine these classes into like a button class, you know, like a classic bootstrap BTN class. So something that I think makes Tailwind different here is that uh, we don't sort of take that dogmatic approach. We call ourselves a utility first framework and not a utility only framework because we still see value in creating these sorts of CSS components like buttons and stuff. Um, so what's interesting about that is that we actually provide tooling for making this really, really easy. So say that you have uh, your, you find yourself creating a bunch of buttons that all look the same and you've got 11 classes on each one and you want to sort of create an abstraction around that. Tailwind makes it really easy for you to create a new class called .btn, copy and paste the list of classes from your HTML, uh, paste that into your CSS file, stick at apply in front of it, which is a custom at rule for basically saying, compose this class out of these existing utility classes. And when Tailwind processes that, it'll basically copy and paste the contents of each one of those utilities into this class. So now you can go into your HTML and replace all these classes with just button. And now you've sort of been able to extract those repeating utilities into a single place so that you can update it uh, in one spot. So this is kind of similar to what you would do in a more traditional CSS approach, right? Like a component driven approach where you would write CSS for a button. The only difference is with Tailwind, we encourage you to do it with utilities first and only extract these components when you start to actually run into situations where you can identify like, okay, this is, this might cause us pain down the road. Now the templating strategy of creating partials or components um, you know, with your JavaScript templating language or your PHP templating engine, whatever you want to do, totally valid way uh, to go as well. If you just want to stick with just utilities and create um, a view component that's like dot list group, or sorry, a view component that's called list group, and that's where you combine all those utilities and you just reuse that style, that can avoid that duplication too. We just try to offer a way to avoid duplication like that uh, without kind of forcing your hand in terms of adopting these whole other approaches and sets of technologies that you know you might not have in place on your project yeah i that when i first started working with this that's one of the the biggest benefits i noticed um i've mentioned before that i come from more of a bem background where everything's a component so switching to this i was you know i was nervous at first well adam what am i going to do with all these things that i have to use over and over and over and this whole idea of add apply came from actually less which the framework was originally built in which actually has a way where you can do this i don't even know what the basically what it is all you do is within a your css within your less within a class you just basically do dot whatever class name you want to include the styles for and CSS supports that and does exactly what add apply does. So we started doing that and we really, really like that workflow. And what, what that did for me building my actual project was I didn't have to struggle to figure out which BM or which BEM component I needed before I started building my layout or my page. What I could do is I could just use these utilities and start creating my design, start creating these different pages within my app. And as these this duplication started to emerge then i'd say hey you know what? I'm, i've now created this button in four different places i'm gonna grab that one and make a component out of it but it's kind of like a reverse of more the you know the, the traditional bem sort of approach where you you start by saying okay well i have a, a button so i'm gonna need to create a button component and and that's really creating components is great for reusable stuff but so often you're doing stuff one off um that creating components is is just pointless because it's only you're not reducing duplication because it's only exists in one place and a lot of times those one-off things are really really difficult to name because you just like it's one off it's like okay it's sl it's similar to this other area but it's a little bit different so you, you end up with these silly bem names these silly class names so i really like this approach um and for something like a button i can tell you right now when you're starting a new project I don't think you necessarily have to wait to the point that you realize that you're going to need more than one button. You're pretty much guaranteed you're going to need more than one button on any sort of web app. Mind you, if it's just a, a coming soon page with a single button, maybe even there you don't need it. But there are certain components that you'll find that you'll you'll generally want on your project that you can foresee that you'll want and you can create those as components right away. But for a lot of things, you know, you just sort of let the workflow dictate that. Yeah. I think that's the right way to do it. I think it's it's best to feel that pain from that duplication before you actually uh, create those uh, 
component classes. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy with kind of like what we have in place with Tailwind for, for making that possible. So I know uh, when we started this conversation, we kind of outlined a bunch of different things that we wanted to talk about. And uh, so far, we've only gotten through sort of the very beginning of it, and we've been going for an hour. So I think what we should do is we should, uh, we should call this episode here. And two weeks from now, when we release the next episode, uh, we should do a part two where we go through uh, the rest of this. Uh, so w- what we're going to be talking about um, going forward and the thing that I'd like to really cover in the next episode is sort of some of the challenges that we face, like releasing uh, this this open source project and uh, kind of everything that went into it and, and, and some of the decisions that we had to make, as well as kind of what the launch went like and, and how crazy it's been with all this activity. And then also talk about a lot of the things that we, uh, we want to work on in future uh, releases of Tailwind. So uh, before we get going, Jonathan, is there anything else that you want to uh, to talk about related to, I guess, the general topic of this episode, which has really been like, what is Tailwind? How is it different from what's out there? And what do we have to offer uh, that's unique? Yeah, I would just, again, reiterate that utility first can be intimidating at first. It can look a little gross at first. Um, don't let that stop you from having a deeper look. Like, give it a chance. Uh, install Tailwind, try it on a project, and and I think with just building one little simple page, I think you'll start pretty quickly seeing kind of the power of this approach. Awesome, man. Well, uh, it's fun chatting with you, and I'm um, looking forward to finishing off the rest of this conversation uh, for the next episode, man. So if anybody is interested in show notes for this episode, where we'll hopefully have a lot of uh, really interesting links to kind of stuff related to the framework, including the documentation, some of our release notes and stuff for the different versions that we've already put out, uh, as well as some resources on sort of getting started with this uh, utility-based uh, CSS stuff. You can head over to fullstackradio.com slash 76. Uh, thanks to Rollbar and CodeChip for sponsoring Full Stack Radio this week, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone.